And welcome to the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. He's Paul Latino. I'm Lance Meadow. Good to have you aboard as we take you up for the next 60 minutes, breaking down everything that is happening with respect to the New York Giants. We'll also get to your phone calls at 201-939-4513. You can also interact with us on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. A reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live brought to you by Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill as the Pro Bowl and the Senior Bowl is on the plate this week, and then next week we get into Super Bowl mode. But before you know it, we are going to be in full off-season mode. I know the Giants <laughs> already are in full off-season mode, but that doesn't mean that the NFL calendar slows down. See, the beauty of the NFL calendar is it is a 24-7 operation, Paul. So it doesn't matter whether your team still has games that need to be played. There is always something going on, whether it be coaching tweaks, whether it be roster moves, whether it be evaluating young talent. Uh, this is the time of the year where many think it's going to be relatively quiet. I would say that it's been the complete opposite <laughs> since the season has died down. There has always been something on the move. Well, let me put it to you this way, Lance. When I started covering the Giants 37 years ago, there was a definite understanding that it's the offseason. You had the Super Bowl, you had the Pro Bowl, and then there was a big black hole in your football schedule outside of the draft. There was not much attention played to the Combine in those days, to be perfectly frank with you. Now it's an event. There was a, you know, mini camp. Few, uh, there was the rookie mini camp after the draft. You know, we're talking about three days. Big deal, you know. Then at one point they had the passing camp, which came and went. It was a dinosaur. It was there and it was gone. Uh, that was one of the other off-season things you had. And then that was it. You had to, you had to wait. You starved for all of your football stuff until training camp opened the following July. Well, then what happened? Come uh, uh, 93, after they got rid of Plan B, and they decided to have full unrestricted free agency, and the salary cap came into play, well, now all of a sudden things started to change because now you had this big-time free agency situation, which was much like what the winter meetings are in baseball. Yeah. And they created, artificially, you know, this was not originally part of the plan, but because unrestricted free agency became a living, breathing thing, it added another whole element to the Giants, uh, not Giants, NFL offseason schedule. And then, of course, now because that started to blow up and that was a big deal and guys were going on free agent tours. Remember Reggie White? Reggie White going on his free agent tour, finally deciding to go to the Packers because that's where God wanted him to play. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the Benjamins. Yes. Okay. God wanted him to play for the Packers. Uh, and and guys went on these free agency tours, and that became a newsmaker almost on a daily basis because oh so and so's visiting there, he's visiting there. They think he's going to go there, and and that started to occupy the headlines. Then what you had was a short while after that, because so much attention was being paid to the free agency market, suddenly people started to pay more attention to the combine now because they were like, well these offseason personnel moves that are involved in free agency are going to have an impact in the draft. So now you better start scouting the draft a little bit more closely if you're a fan. And that meant paying more attention to the combine. And it's really weird how this whole thing morphed during the course of my career to now where if you really want to chew on NFL news, you can do it 12 months out of the year. And that's why there is a serious NFL radio network of which you're a part of. Correct. Well, and also because the speculation never dies down, Paul, to not, your point, in connection to all of these events. There's always something looming, whether it be somebody retiring or where a player may end up. Or, I mean, as we're witnessing right now, just coaching news now has become a big area of speculation. Mm -hmm. It didn't used to be like that, where you'd be worried about hearing two teams competing for an offensive coordinator or a tight ends coach. And, you know, now you sort of have that feel that the competition for coaching staff members, I think, is just as intense as it is with respect to rounding out your roster with players. Well, I just put it down here, but let me reach over because of this. Of course. The, the phone and Twitter has now... Well, and the computers well, yeah, in front of us as well. No I think question. Are contributing no question. But you don't bring your computer with you 24-7. Okay, it's so ridiculous now, this, you know, the, the Twitterverse and the rumors. Who's visiting who? Who's getting what job? When are they getting it? And, oh, if I don't have it in the next 15 seconds, my whole world's going to collapse. I got to know right away. I mean, 
that that has really become so insane and so obsessive that you know you can't you can't have any downtime anymore it really is 12 months out of the year because people are so obsessed with their social habits about paying attention to the twitterverse it forces, if nothing else, it forces it down your throat. You have to be on top of it 12 months out of the year. You can no longer have any downtime at all. Yeah, well, that's the good and bad of the technological revolution, as I like well, to Well, the bad it. is sometimes you create stuff that you don't even have to because you need something to talk about. Correct. Just yes. to feed the beast. Well, because you need the substance. Well, I shouldn't say it's substance, but you need something to fill up airtime or the written page or whatever it may be. But I think that brings us really full circle back to the Giants. There's a reason why on this very program that we constantly stress nothing has been official from the team's standpoint because how often have we seen reports that are out there and it looks like something's going to get done and it doesn't get done. That's why there's a reason why we always emphasize that. I know I'm sure a lot of you are tired of hearing it, but the reason why we constantly say, according to multiple reports, nothing that the team is confirming is because until things are signed on the dotted line, Paul and the ink dries, the team is not going to make any official statement because that's how the negotiating business works. We've seen with player contracts, coaching contracts are no different. Things sometimes fall apart at the last second, which is why you can't just take a report for granted that that's it. It's a done deal and everything's going to follow suit. Well, I remember again the free agent game uh, as agents would start, you know, to leak stuff and visits yeah. and deals that were supposedly agreed to and then started to fall apart. You're absolutely right. Now it's to the point where everybody's talking about the coaching staffs, every last position on the coaching staff. And those are now rumors until Penn has put the paper. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. Why don't we just get a helicopter and have them fly over every single NFL coach and assistant coach that does not currently have a job. Don't give them follow, ideas, Paul. Follow them around 24 hours so that everybody can keep track of them. And put a homing device on them as well. I was going to say, do I not. Mean, that's how ridiculous this whole thing is. Do not give TMZ any ideas because if they're <laughs> looking to fill up some airtime, they may actually go that route and fulfill your wishes. 201 939 4513 is the telephone number. Hashtag Giants Chat. We'll get into some other topics such as the Senior Bowl and so forth as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. But let's give you an opportunity to weigh in with some questions and comments as we move forward here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. And we start off the festivities with Bruno, who is in Atlanta. He joins us right now on BBKL. What's happening, Bruno? Hello? Bruno going once. Bruno going twice. Bruno apparently is not very talkative. All right, we will let Bruno go on that note. Let's give Bruno one more try. Bruno, you there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, hello. there you go, Bruno. Hello. How we doing? Oh, I've been yelling my head off here trying to get... Okay, well, <laughs> now hear we hear your right, yells. So yes. On. Fantastic. So what's hey, happening? So I, I had a thought about the tight end position. Um, okay. Caden Smith was a, was a fantastic gem of a find. Uh, you know, Gettleman has to get some credit for finding him. And by the of way, course, Bruno, yeah, before can... you go any further, I don't want to interrupt you, but I am getting a bunch of tweets saying that the show is not on the app. So we're going to try to fix that on the Giants uh, app as soon as possible. Just want to let you know there's nothing wrong with your phones uh, because gotcha. a number of people have mentioned that, and we're going to try to get that squared away. Okay, cool. cool. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. So Caden Smith was a gem. Obviously, he has to continue to develop. Obviously, it's very important who the, the new tight end coach is going to be, and I don't think there's been one named yet. Um, but in, in looking at, at Jason Witten, what he did with the tight end in Dallas, what what the Patriots have done with the tight ends in the past, you know, um, I, I think he's the direction to go. Obviously, Rhett Ellison, very expensive uh, free agent that may no longer be around. Evan Ingram, you know, super fast guy, ran a 4-4, but can't stay healthy. Maybe by no fault of his own. Hopefully he can stay healthy in the future. But, you know, I was looking at some of the, the sizes of some of these tight ends. Jason Wynn, 6'6", 263 with Dallas. Uh, Gronkowski, 6'6", 268. Even Jimmy Graham, who's been compared to Evan Ingram, 6'7", 265 is what I saw uh, online. George Kittle, 6'4", 250. Caden Smith fits right in that mold, 6'5", 252. I know he ran a slow 40 at 4'9". But, I mean, that was that was a slower-than-expected 40 time when he was at the Combine. Um, you know, conversely, Mark Bavaro, 6'4", 245. He wasn't the fastest guy either. But 
he was a dual threat. And when we're talking about multiple weapons in this new offense, I think when a, a defense looks at our tight ends, that that guy can legitimately block or he's only a receiving threat, there's something to be said for that. Now, Evan Ingram, young guy, and what's attractive to us that he's on a rookie contract could be attractive to another team. So uh, what, do, do we know what the Giants were asking for? I know that he was in the trade rumors last season. What were we asking for? And is the value of like a second-round pick or a third-round pick in such a deep draft at receiver? What do you guys think about that value, getting a second or a third rounder for an Evan Ingram? You know, if we can't get 16 games out of the guy, is, are we better off getting one of these skyscraper wide receivers in the second or third round, which is a deep receiver class, and go forward with a, with a Caden Smith? Well, in, in terms of the wide receiver position, Darius Slayton, you like what he showed. You still have Golden Tate under contract. You still have Sterling Shepard under contract. I really don't think the necessity of a wide receiver is something worth acquiring as a result of sacrificing Evan Ingram, who is still a weapon within this offense. Plus, you got a new offensive coordinator in Jason Garrett, and who knows how he wants to utilize his tight ends and what he wants to do with the personnel. I'm sure they're going to take his feedback and they're going to listen, considering Garrett worked with a variety of tight ends during his tenure in Dallas. So, once again, I would not be so quick to get rid of Evan Ingram, mainly because it's a benefit to the Giants that he's still on a rookie contract, too. And the fact that he still has one year left on his rookie deal plus the fifth year option so you actually have two years of Evan Ingram under your control right. where there should not be yeah, the itch to get rid of him so here's the thing you're absolutely right from everything that I've heard from the draft folks there are at least three rounds of productive prospects at wide receiver in this draft and quite frankly as I've looked at the list already due to preliminary research there are a lot of tall guys, and as you know, that's always been my preference, that the Giants have at least one of those guys in their wide receiving room. So I, I understand your desire to get one. I don't think you have to make a trade to get one of those guys. There are going to be plenty of them there sitting on the shelf, just like when they found Darius Slayton on the fifth round of last spring's draft. They'll, they'll get one of those guys. They don't, they don't have to trade away an asset to do so. Right, and my, my, my only thought is that we could get additional capital if we can do a trade and get a second or third rounder for an Evan Ingram because we have so many holes. And if, if Caden Smith is yeah, potentially but... the future at tight end, you know, now the, the, the same reason why Ingram is attractive to us on his rookie contract, another team would be willing. Maybe let me ask you a question. And let me ask you a yeah. question. And I don't want to put Evan Ingram into this because, quite frankly, I'm not the general manager, so I don't have the power to talk about you know his contract or whether or the not part, he should or yes. should not be traded. But player X, coming off of foot surgery, is certainly not going to hold the commensurate value to his talent based on the injury. I mean, if you're another team and you're like, I like that guy, I might want to deal for him. But he's coming off a of foot surgery. How much do you think I'm going to be willing to give you? Well, and that's what I'm thinking. Maybe not a second rounder, but a third rounder. Uh, you might get a you might get a bag of deflated footballs yeah, for a guy coming off foot surgery. <laughs> no, seriously, right. yeah. for p player X coming off of foot surgery. Football players need their feet. I mean, yeah. seriously, un until he proves he's healthy, quite frankly, the Giants don't even know exactly what his value will be to them in the 2020 season until he gets on the field again and starts to practice and starts to produce. They don't even know. And plus, with Caden Smith, who you brought up, while I think he had a really strong second half of the season once he came here, you know, the sample size is also very small for Caden Smith. Do you all, all of a sudden want to put all of your marbles in that box and you don't want to at least have some luxury or security blanket at that position? Evan Ingram, once again, on a rookie contract, is not a stress cap or not an issue to your cap. So therefore, I think there's value in having both of the guys still on the roster. Look, go get the skyscraping wide receiver, but but to suggest trading Ingram, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I can't be on board with that. Well, what's the projection for – do we know what the projection is for him? How soon he'll be back to health? Three months, six months? We were told at the end of the season that he would be ready for training camp. Okay. Mm. But you're not going to know before the draft. So to me, the conversation or the hypothetical doesn't hold any water. No, and my only thought is just to get additional draft capital filled, to fill all our holes. Yeah, no, but, so. I, well, I, but I think that also if you're going to create another hole by doing that, you have to think twice. 
You don't just get rid of a player to fill another hole if you then create another hole by trading him away. And if you really want additional draft capital, maybe you move down from number four. So he's a pilot. Well, exactly. That's uh, obviously that's an argument, but but is it my comfort or my? You know, and again, it's the off season. We we, we got nothing to do for a couple of months. Here, <laughs> I know. Come up with this crazy scenario. It is so painful but, you know, to it, go it, through it, the off season. It's creating a hole if Caden Smith is the guy and another you because know, who's the backup uh, tight end in uh, the in San Francisco? We don't know. It's George Kittle and some other guy. Mm-hmm. Who's the backup in in Kansas City? Travis Kelsey and some some other guy. Who right. We don't don't really know. Right. So, why can't we develop a a, a young tight end who who could be versatile, and another guy behind well, him, and and let's you know this. Well, I love I, Evan Ingram. I love his speed, the mismatches. But if he can't stay on the field, we're not getting any mismatches when he's not playing. Well, clearly that, the durability is still a question mark. There's no doubt about that. But Caden Smith is a guy that, to answer your question, they are developing. Because there's yeah. a reason why they claimed him. Now they could develop him. So, I, I mean, I think you have that unknown commodity, such as Caden Smith, who the Giants found because the Niners decided to part ways with him. The Giants brought him in, developed him. He got his opportunity when Evan Ingram went down, and he's reaping the rewards. So you still have that young guy on the roster, but that doesn't mean, once again, I, I think that you automatically part ways with Evan Ingram just because you know he's been battling some injuries. When Evan Ingram's on the field, and he showed that earlier this season before he went down with an injury, and uh, appreciate the phone call, Bruno. Thanks so much for weighing in. You know He was on pace, Paul, for a career year. Yes. If Evan doesn't go down, he's on pace for a career year. It was unfortunate that he went down in the second half of the season. But, I mean, he was extremely productive from the time that he was fully suited up and ready to go. And I think this new coaching staff is going to want to take a look at what they have in him anyway. I don't think they would be too anxious to ship him off without getting a feel for what he's all about. Because even Joe Judge has said he has seen the Giants from the outside. He needs to do a lot of analysis inside the building to know what they are going to bring to the table. Uh, Ross Dwelly, by the way, is the backup to George Kittle uh, with the 49ers. And Levine Toilolo, I believe it is, is their third-string tight end. And Daniel Helm is their fourth-string tight end, just for your own edification. Well, Dwelly, remember, played a lot this season because Kittle missed a few games at one point this season. And the Niners, you could argue, may have one of the best depth charts in the NFL because of how they utilize so much personnel. They get those guys ready so that when an injury does happen, they're not thrown for a loop. Uh, they're prepared to put those guys in the mix. So we actually did hear about the Niners' backup tight end this season because he did have to play, and he was called for duty, given the fact that uh, Kittle got banged up at one point. Let's uh, head back to the phone lines, and we check in with Chris in Passaic River. Chris, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening? Hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Thanks for taking my call. Hello. So, well, thanks for making hey. it. Absolutely. So, you know, the past, we go back two years ago, obviously, even three years ago, the problem with the Giants, a lot of, we've had, you know, issues, but one of the things we always bring up is the depth of the team. And looking now, moving into 2020, with the young players at, uh, on the defensive line, uh, uh, secondary, and even a little bit at linebacker with Connolly and, and David Mayo, you know, a few pieces uh, added in free agency, some, some veterans, obviously, maybe they're not top tier but you know middle tier type free agents i think already you start to see you know the depth because um, you know you have a guy like Connolly uh who may not even start um you have mayo possibly coming off the bench you have uh you know these defensive linemen that are young i i, I feel like you know whatever happens in 2020 we are going to see the 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 uh the fruition of these uh of, of the depth of the, of the team start to show itself Well, I think that's the goal, that as the young guys get more and more experience, you move towards the direction that, you know, they'll play more with one another, they'll be in sync. But keep in mind, now a lot of these young guys are going to have to learn a new defensive scheme for the second time in three years for some, or depending on where they came from previously, their colleges. So that's also, you know, something that you have to take into consideration with respect to the growing pains for some of these guys. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. And, and, and another player that's coming back, which uh, really did fantastic in the return game, is Corey Coleman. So I'm hoping. Well, Coleman's a free agent, keep in mind, okay? That is true, right? So, so hoping, you know, there's no guarantees uh, you know, when it can, comes to free agents. Uh, we sign him, especially for the re- return game. But, um, you know, we'll see how that goes. But uh, the other thing is, and, you know, maybe it's directed more to, you, more to Paul, but uh, 
with, with Garrett now officially being on board. Just out of curiosity, I know we're in the offseason, a little bit of a break now. The season ended just a few weeks ago. How soon does Garrett and, and Jones actually get together and, and dive into, uh, you know, just the basics of, of, of what this um, new offensive scheme is going to be? How well, they, soon does that happen? Well, basically? they can't do it right now because uh, the coaches, the coordinators in particular with the head coach are at the Senior Bowl this week. So, right. so that's not happening right now. Now, Daniel did tell everybody when the season was over, the media, when, when they talked to him in front of his locker, he planned on spending most of his offseason time here in Jersey. And so he's allowed within the rules of the CBA to at least have, you know, some type of contact with the coaches. But in terms of what they can do at the facility, he can look at film on his own during the dates that they're allowed to be here. Then there are, of course, you know, blackout dates when yeah. even the players are not allowed in the building. He can also do stuff on his own at home, and I'm sure that there's been communication. It would, it's likely that Garrett and him have at least had conversation, text messages, emails, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there are very strict rules with the CBA until the offseason program begins in mid-March. Uh, you know, there's there's very little or limited stuff that they can actually do, uh, you know, in each other's company. Yeah, they can't talk scheme. They're prevented from doing that with respect to the CBA. So it's not as if Jason Garrett could sit down with Daniel Jones and have an entire NFL lesson or some of the things he wants to implement on the offensive side of the ball. They can have conversations, you know, what are you doing? What's your plan in terms of offseason workouts? But they really can't start talking X's and O's until offseason workouts begin. So the right. substance of the conversation is extremely limited other than, hi, how you doing, and keeping in touch with one another. But it's not as if Daniel Jones can interact with Jason Garrett you know, on the iPad and uh, you know, break down potential plays or things that he ran in Dallas. Now, Daniel Jones can take it upon himself. Daniel Jones can look at what the Cowboys ran over the last few years. Well, Eli he can study that. that up himself. If you yeah. remember, when Shermer was named head coach, and I had talked to Eli here, we did an interview for Giants.com at that time, and he had said he was going to look at some of the Vikings' offensive Which makes sense. tape yeah. because he wanted to get a jump on some of the stuff that Shermer wanted to do. And that, of course, was a couple of years back. I, I'm confident that Daniel Jones being you know, the kind of work uh, guru that he is, I'm sure he's done some of that already. Yeah, just like you could say the defensive players may want to look at what the Dolphins ran last year just to maybe brush up on what they're going to be asked Wouldn't to do. Wouldn't surprise me at all. From a schematic standpoint. Right. Oh, that's great, guys. Thanks for the info. All sure. right, Chris. Appreciate the phone call. Thanks so much for weighing in. Let's check in with Andrew, who is in Massachusetts. Andrew, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? Hey, fellas. How's it going? Hi. Good night, Andrew. I uh, just wanted to say, first thing, Lance, the only consolation prize about the Eagles winning the division is that you can continue with your favorite stat about well, there you go. no back-to-back division winners. Uh, listen, I don't look forward um, to saying it every single year, but as long as it continues to exist, I will gladly throw it out there. Just like as long as the Giants don't draft a linebacker in the first round, you're going to hear that Carl Banks was the last linebacker that the Giants took. So it's all up to the trends to end. Those are out of my control. Right, and we just have to hope that B.J. Hill can get uh, you know three and a half sacks in one game again to uh, bolster his stat line too. Well, considering that was a big part of him getting the five and a half last year, there's no doubt about it. Right, uh, I just wanted to say, guys, that the only thing I feel like I was a Shermer believer because I'm a believer in stability, and I think that's really big for our team. But he really lost me at that second Eagles game. I mean, the first Eagles matchup with the overtime loss, the Manning return game. I just wanted to, I wanted, I hoped, I just wanted it to continue and uh, that they could build off all the progress they made. But I guess my question for you guys, I feel like the new coaching staff, the big concern for me is that they won't continue to, or the guys will take a step back, but especially in the uh, O-line and the D-back. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that. Thanks. All right, appreciate the phone call. It'd be pretty hard for the O-line and the D-backs to take a step back because both units had a lot of trouble this past season. The D-backs with a lot of confusion. Uh, the offensive line, quite frankly, also with a lot of confusion. Uh, many of the issues that the Giants' offensive line had were picking up late blitzers and picking up twists and stunts. When, when it came to just straight-on blocking, they handled that pretty well. It was the other stuff that really seemed to give them a lot of confusion. Uh, so, you know, I, I would like to believe that the new voices that are going to be talking to these players uh, will have a, uh, uh, 
don't know what's the word I'm looking for, a higher level of success in terms of getting the game plan through to them and teaching them and, and seeing that they can get more production out of them. Well, one of the things Joe Judge emphasized during his press conference, and this is based on his educational background, Paul. No child left behind, remember? Yeah, well, the teaching aspect. He used that, that phrase in translation to the locker room, no yeah. player left behind. Well, and even if he didn't use that phrase, it's just, once again, his background is from an educational standpoint, a kindergarten teacher. So this goes back to when he was studying to go into teaching, you're taught mechanisms to transfer that knowledge, Paul, to students. So it's no different now as a football coach. You need to get that message across, not just to one guy. You need to get it across to everybody else. Now, that's Joe Judge who's going to be overseeing things. He's now, the task at hand is going to be to get his assistance, Paul, from taking the lessons he learned and using those mechanisms to get the message across themselves with their positional groupings. That, to me, is going to say a lot about the defensive backs and the offensive linemen in particular, which the last caller brought up, and how effective they are in taking and making strides in that department. You see, that's why I believe the number one prerequisite for any of the guys on his staff, and it really became obvious to me after we met Joe Judge at his introductory press conference, he is so much in tuned to the Belichickian philosophies, the Saban, Belichickian, um, Parcells type styles of play and philosophies about how you get there, that it's critical, it is critical that every member of his staff has an understanding of those philosophies and can translate those philosophies to the players. That's almost more critical than anything else that you could possibly associate with a head coach. Because the key to the Giants' success is going to be in the foundation and the roots of those old-school philosophies, guys like Parcells, Belichick, and Saban, that have clearly been ingrained into Joe Judge's DNA. And if he does not have a coaching staff that buys all into that stuff, and can make the players believe in it and translate it for them, you are going to wind up having missteps and the kinds of, I don't, want, I don't know if confusion is the right word, but there were often things that seemed to be out of sync as you watch the Giants players play during the 2019 season. Well, the two coordinators that have been confirmed, just look at their backgrounds too. You've got... Two individuals that are tied to that Belichick-Saban coaching tree. Because remember, Garrett was Saban's quarterback's coach in Miami. And Graham came from New England. And that was established when he came here and he was under Ben McAdoo. So that's one aspect mm -hmm. that I think bodes very well for Joe Judge, which is your point. They've been exposed to the Belichick-Saban no method. Okay. The other thing is both of them are Ivy League-educated individuals, which doesn't necessarily immediately guarantee success, but I don't think it hurts in terms no. of the educational background. If Joe Judge is preaching education teaching, then you now have two individuals that went to prestigious universities and institutions who also, it's fair to say, took their academics quite seriously mm -hmm. in order to even get to that level. I could tell you from covering the Ivy League, they don't just let anybody walk in the door regardless of your football skill yeah, set. Yeah, but you do some of the broadcasts. What does that say? Well, that does say that they <laughs> lower their standards in terms of the broadcasting booth. I wasn't talking about the institution. Okay, the broadcasting booth standards are completely different than the oh. institution. Yes. I'd like to get and, that fastball. Congratulations. And, of, on and of course, Thomas McGahee, the special teams coordinator, yeah. has roots under the Coughlin administration, which is an extension of exactly. the Parcells stuff. So all of that, when you analyze it across the board, I, I think that's the reason why he's done his due diligence in terms of selecting coaches. He's not just going to rush to pick the first guy that may be available. I, I think that he's working to get individuals who share his beliefs and his philosophies, and this way he doesn't have to micromanage and be on top of everybody 24-7 so that he can handle being what he laid out in his press conference, the CEO delegating responsibilities type of coach, which is exactly what Tom Coughlin was. Coughlin didn't call plays, but Coughlin had his hands in everything, and he was able to oversee all elements. So I think Judge wants to try to duplicate that, and time will tell whether or not it'll be successful, but mm -hmm. it's certainly different than the last two coaches who served as play callers slash head coaches and had a great deal of time and investment 
in on the offensive side of the ball. Let's head back to the Lions. We check in with Scott, who is in New Mexico. Scott, welcome to the Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? Hi, guys. Uh, I had a question for you. I'm enjoying the conversation, but I just wanted to know if it's a little bit of a false narrative. I like the coaching changes the Giants have made, but isn't it true that in the NFL all coaches try to teach their players and how well they absorb is really the issue? And so Joe Judge uh, uh, stating the obvious, you want to teach your players the right way to play football, is something that all coaches in all NFL teams do. So are we are we overblowing this just a little bit so far as the teaching element? Scott, I hate because to burst your bubble, but that's not true. Uh, okay. you, you may want that to be the case, but you have many of coaches in the National Football League and certainly at the assistant and coordinator level and even some at the head coaching level who are not necessarily adept at being good teachers. You, right. ha- you have a number of them scattered throughout the league who want to dictate their philosophy. They'll be stubborn about it. They'll say, this is my scheme. This is what I do. Here it is. Okay, don't right. you get it? Okay, fine. You don't get it? All right. Uh, We'll bury you on the depth chart. We'll ask somebody else to play the position. Hey, this is what I'm doing. And those are the guys who not only uh, don't teach well, but those are the same guys who are usually um, very quick to bury guys on the back of the depth chart and kind of discard them because the guy doesn't necessarily know how to adapt what he is trying to do to make it understandable for the players and to get the most out of the players. So I think what you're saying would be awesome if it were true. The problem is not all coaches in this league are that good at at being teachers. Right. One example, I'm going to cite off the Giants, uh, but I really wanted to get to the evaluation process. But for three years, we had the experiment with Eric Flowers, and you you obviously know that Pat Flaherty is a very good coach. Yes. And the coach after him was very good as well. And for three years, we tried that experiment of, I'm sure, teaching him the right way to play football. And obviously, he didn't absorb the information that was that, and obviously, he got traded. So... uh, I don't. I think players have to absorb information if they're taught something, just like anything else. So, like students have to learn. If you're given lessons, you have to pick up that information. Some people pick it up at a different level than others. So, I, I, I agree with you, Paul, that probably not every team is the same. But I don't agree that that's not the premise of the NFL hierarchy. They want to teach their players uh, the right way to play football, at least from what I've seen from the top teams that are playing in the NFL today. Uh, well, again, you're, you're also segmenting now. You're saying top teams. There's a reason right. why there are bottom feeder teams in the league. Oh, and absolutely. one of those yeah. reasons is the coaching staffs are not the best teachers. They're not the most informed. And they're not necessarily supporting everything that's designed in the mission. Right. I mean, look, I'm not going to fool you here. All right? The best head coaches, if they don't have a really good coaching staff to support them, they will not win. That's Seriously. True. Yeah. But I do think, Scott, it goes both ways, to your point. Sure. I, I don't think that Scott is off base in saying that I do think some of the onus is on the players in terms of listening, observing, and taking what the coaches tell them. Now, I think the difference is, which is to me what Paul is pointing out, Scott, is you can have great teachers all across the board in the NFL, okay? They're not just handed their positions for the sake of just having their positions, but I think the methods that certain coaches utilize are more effective than others. And I think one of the things judges preaching is there's got to be a certain approach in terms of how they teach the players and also realizing if the guy in the back of the room is not getting it, then that's a reflection of you not getting it across to everybody in the room and that type of emphasis. So right. that, that I think, is maybe something that is one thing to watch for him and his staff. Now, to your point, it doesn't mean that just because you have a great resume, everything's going to go smoothly. I would agree with your sentiments there. I just think it's more about the approach in the teaching that jumps out to me about his background and what he's been saying. And I think what's interesting, you mentioned Pat Flaherty, certainly a very well-respected offensive line coach. Mike Solari, who was later on the Giants offensive line coach. Both very well-respected. And Eric Flowers could not maximize his production under either guy whose reputation far exceeds anything that Eric Flowers could imagine. Okay, so now he goes to Washington, the change of position to guard. And from what I understand, talking to one of the fellows with the Redskins, who I know very well, 
it wasn't so much the coaching staff of the Redskins that got Flowers to play at a satisfactory level this past season. It was right. more the other offensive linemen in the room, from what I understand. Brandon Sheriff, in particular, was a tremendous influence on getting Flowers coached up, if you will, to become a functional player. So, I, I, you know, I want to be very careful here. Uh, when you brought those two offensive line coaches up, I, I don't want to besmirch them because Eric Flowers did not fulfill his potential with the Giants. Those two guys have very, very high reputations. Right. Let me get to my basic point, and then I'll probably take it off the air. Uh, to paraphrase uh, Coach Judge, uh, he wants to uh, have his coaches tell him uh, what his players can do as opposed to what they can't do. And in the evaluation process, since all the coaches are not in place yet, there were certain players on the roster. I think, Paul, you discussed the Nate Soldier situation, some mitigating circumstances, why he didn't play as well as he did. But you had other players on the roster, for example, Alec Ogletree and uh, Antoine Patay, who played adequately but didn't play, I think, to their strengths. But you've gotten rid of all the coaches. So when they do the evaluation process, and Coach Judge looks at these players, he doesn't really have a foundation other than film to see how they were because the schemes are going to change. I guess when uh, Coach Graham comes in, he's going to change and adapt to the, what the players' strengths are. So how do you get a fair evaluation of the players that didn't perform well in last season because perhaps they were out of position as opposed to putting them in a different position? And And my second part of that is when does the actual evaluation process initiate for players like that because you don't have all your coaches in place yet and I assume it takes a while to develop some continuity but I'm just curious as to how you evaluate players when you're not quite sure they were in the right system to start out with and that may be also for some of the cornerbacks too and I appreciate it guys and I'll right, your answers off the air. appreciate the phone call thanks so much for weighing in well, there's a multi-pronged answer to this. First of all, um, before any of the decisions were made uh, with the assistant coaches, every single one of them had to submit evaluations. As soon as the season was over, they started working on those things to the personnel department and the general manager that said, okay, offensive line, in this case, Hal Hunter was the offensive line coach. He had to immediately get cracking as soon as the season was over on individual evaluations for all of his own guys. Because even after the dismissal of a head coach, those assistants are still employed by the team until they join somebody else. And it is their responsibility, okay, to submit a postseason evaluation of their room. That is still part of their job before they walk out of here. So, so that's the first part of the evaluation process. The second part of the evaluation process is the personnel department's self-scouting, which also now goes into that player's folder. They've got stuff that they've seen. Then on top of that, the general manager, in this case, David Gettleman, who is very much attuned to the scouting process and using his own eye to see the tape. He has his own thoughts about what talent level a particular player has. And now you have Judge coming in, and he says, okay, now i got to look at all that tape. And in addition to that, he's going to look at those files, and he's also going to talk to the coaches who are held over. Yeah. Okay, for example, Ty Tolbert um, did the wide receivers last year, and there are reports in the national media that Ty Tolbert has been retained. Okay, now, whenever that's announced... Regardless of well, what he it himself is. on Twitter actually announced it. Okay, so. so let's just say that. Yeah. So he is not only able to uh, show all the paperwork to Coach Judge that is necessary to begin the evaluation. He can also give a firsthand account of the players that he had under his watch, and all of those things together basically make the pie. So is it perfect? No. It's not perfect. There's no way it's going to be perfect, which is why usually organizations like the Giants preach consistency. Why do you think the Steelers are so reluctant every year when there is a bump in the road to dismiss Mike Tomlin? They, they usually tell you that even Jason Garrett was with the Cowboys for a long time because there is value to consistency, and that goes directly to Scott's point. 
Absolutely. Well, I've always said the more teams play the revolving door, the less likely they are to win football games and make the playoffs. I think that's been well documented. There's no reason why you should make change for the sake of making change. There has to be a need to say, hey, it's time to go in a different direction. The teams that preach patience are far more successful in the long run than the ones that constantly make change. I would agree with everything you said in terms of the evaluation. The the other thing I would throw in is if the strength and conditioning staff is retained. I think those are other people that are valuable for a new Mm -hmm. head coach to talk Mm -hmm. to in terms of work ethic. Remember, it's not just about X's and O's. When you come in as your head coach, you also want to know, how did the guy work in practice? Was he injury prone? How did he receive medical treatment? Did he show up for all of his lifting and his workouts? Those guys know a lot. Even the medical team knows a lot too, Paul. No question. If you're a new coach, you probably go to those entities first before you even worry about the X's and O's. They can tell you something about the insides of a player. but that's important. And the other thing too, Joe Judge and the Patriots played the Giants this year. So understand And he said that at his presser. He studied Yeah, yeah. and usually teams will look at three game films of the upcoming opponent when they play them. So think about this. Before the Giants played New England, Judge and the rest of that Patriots staff looked at cut-ups of three games prior to that Patriots game before they kicked it off against the Giants. So he had already done some limited film study on certainly the Giants special teams players at the very least. Well, and every coach is different in terms of preparing for their interview, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that he probably did some additional homework in preparing for the interview because you realize during an interview they're going to ask you specific questions so they want to hear specific answers in terms of, okay, what would you do for our team and so forth. So In in short, there's no 100% correct uh, answer to this. There will be some things that fall through the cracks. It's not perfect. It's not airtight, which is why the conservative-minded organization okay we'll always say we're not looking for reasons to change we're looking for reasons not to change and those are two different sides of the spectrum when you begin to mull a decision well and the other thing that I would just add before we go on to some more callers because the whole premise of the question was the fact that maybe Joe Judge and company have to play catch-up because the staff is not in place. The bottom line is the evaluation process never ends for an organization, Paul. They're right. evaluating these guys during the season. They're evaluating them in the offseason. They're evaluating them during the draft process. It's such a fluid situation. So even if there's no coach or official staff in place, the general manager and the pro personnel staff is always evaluating. I mean, that's a big part of their job. You know, Dave Gettleman, how many times in his after season press conference that he says, I'm here to service the head coach because I'm here to provide We are all support staff. Yeah, support staff. Exactly. That was the phrase. So in order to be a good support staff, you've got to constantly do the evaluating that maybe the coaching staff hasn't had an opportunity to do. So I don't really think there's a timeline for that, I guess is what I'm saying. The CBA does allow for organizations who change their head coach to have a little bit extra time. There's an extra mini camp. Starts a week earlier okay. than the other teams. Well, they're allowed an extra mini camp, not just the well, timing and they usually, of it. But they usually also start a week before yes. everybody else. But they, they give yeah. them extra days as well, not just the timing of it, but they get extra days to hold their camps to try to give those folks a little bit more time to get familiar with their roster. Yeah, so there's always flexibility put in place. But once again, it's an evolving process, the evaluation process. It's not something that automatically starts on February 1st of every single year and everybody goes into evaluation mode. Every team is on a different timeline, given the fact that it depends on did they make the playoffs? How deep did they go into the playoffs? Bill Belichick always jokingly said after his press conferences when the team wins the Super Bowl, he goes... Well, now we're about three or four weeks behind everybody else in the NFL. <laughs> he does. That's his money line. He, does. he doesn't have to worry about it this year, but he does. He always says that. And, you know, everybody gets a good laugh, but uh, there's validity behind it. We're on to Cincinnati. Yeah, exactly. So now, speaking of Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick actually is rubbing shoulders. Well, I don't know how closely he's rubbing shoulders, but he is down at the Senior Bowl with our very own John Schmelk, who joins us on the phone line right now here for Big Blue Kickoff Live. How are we doing, John? Oh, I got to actually take John. That would be a step in the right direction. I was hoping that he would transfer his thought process somehow (laughs) through another power. How are we doing, John? Take two. Well, now I'm happy to be with you. We are on the road on the way to the stadium for practice number two. All right. So finally, by the time we got done with you yesterday, and you were able to get the lay of the land with some of the pressures that were going on. What were you able to glean from the afternoon into the early evening uh, from yesterday's session? 
Uh, I think generally speaking, I think the um, we had a couple standouts on the defensive line, and, and not edge rushers, unfortunately, for Giant fans who are looking for that, but two interior guys I thought had really nice days. Marlon Davidson out of Auburn, somebody not a lot of guys are talking about, I thought. Um, had a really effective practice. I thought he was the best player on the field in both practices, to be honest with you. He looked like a late first-round pick to me. Uh, Javon Kinlaw, who we kind of talked about yesterday, mm-hmm. also had a real good day of practice. Um, another guy that played well. I thought the receivers for the North team and the South team were, were also pretty good. Uh, Michael Pittman Jr. from USC created some nice separation. Uh, Chase Claypool, a big wide receiver from Notre Dame, made a couple of catches. So uh, those are the guys for the most part that, that stood out to me. John, watching the highlights that NFL Network showed last night on their wrap-up show, it looked like you guys are actually sitting in the stands on the, on the on the sides in the stadium, or are you are you allowed on the field at all? No, the people on the field are only team personnel for either the Bengals or the Lions, so anybody else has to be out in the stands. And those are, of course, the two coaching staffs that are uh, overseeing the practices and so forth. Uh, One guy I know you wrote about uh, in the article that's posted up on Giants.com, our listeners and fans can take a look at your wrap-up of day one, was uh, Wisconsin linebacker Zach Bond. Uh, What exactly jumped out to you about him? Because I've been hearing a lot of chatter based on what he did in practice the other day. Yeah, you know, the the thing about Bond that's interesting is that Wisconsin – he was used primarily as an edge rusher. He had double-digit sacks as a pass rusher, but he's only around 220 pounds. So that's not, not something he's going to do in the NFL. He's done some space work at Wisconsin, but not a ton. So, you know, he's somebody that I think it's important during the draft process to show that he can drop into coverage and cover and change direction and go in space and things of that nature. There a couple times yesterday in coverage against running backs did not look the best, but he's certainly a good enough athlete to do it. So if he can adjust to that role, I think he could be a day-two linebacker. You had mentioned in your notebook that's on Giants.com, John, about Matt Patricia's practice seeing especially intense <laughs> and physical. I- I'm curious because obviously there are guidelines by somebody. I guess the Senior Bowl people, Jim Nagy and company, have set guidelines for how much they can do. Uh, explain, if you can, a little bit more to me about what was going on there. Well, they ran nine on seven. Okay. Um, and usually, and and that's how you laugh, but that, you know that that I mean, you don't usually see that sort of stuff. No. At least I haven't. The last couple of years, I've been at the Senior Bowl, and they ran legit nine on seven, uh, straight up run drills. Now it wasn't you know tackling to the ground or anything, but uh, I was surprised to see that. It was one of the things they did early in practice too. There wasn't a whole lot of you know um, for the North practice at least uh, a ton of seven on seven and pass work. It was less than they had for the South. So uh, I just thought. The line coaches generally were very vocal. They were on these players a lot, and they were just really going them on to be very physical. And, and the nature of the practice, I think, was very physical. Well, and if people are wanting to connect the dots, Matt Patricia is from the Bill Belichick coaching <laughs> tree, and now Joe Judge is here with the Giants. So, you know, you wonder whether or not that toughness, John, that he spoke to at the press conference is perhaps something that we're going to see here with the Giants, given what Matt Patricia is showing with some of the young guys at the Senior Bowl. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually had a chance. Um, Joe Judge sat down with uh, some of the local media this morning, and Dan Salmo and I were there from Giants.com. Dan's writing up the story now for it. And he, he kind of reiterated that toughness again and talked about, um, he was asked about Jason Garrett being the offensive coordinator, and he basically said, that, look, the first thing we want to be able to do is run the football, and I think that lends the fact that he wants us to be a tough physical football team first and foremost. Did uh, Coach Judge give any timetable for filling out the rest of his staff during that media briefing? Uh, he, he would not confirm any names. He said a couple of the guys um, are, are more than more or less locked in, but he says once everyone gets contract signed, he says, you know, things can change um, before the names on the dotted line, that once everyone's confirmed, they will figure it out. But he was very very specific to say how much time he's taking with these hires because he doesn't want to have to go and change his staff after year. He wants these guys here for the long term. So I think one thing he said was that he's making like 20 to 25 phone calls on each guy before he even interviews them. So Mm. he has a really good feeling for who they are, what they are, the type of person they are, if he's going to fit into the program that Coach Judge wants to build. And he says, look, I'll take my time. He goes, I'd rather rush. I mean, I'd rather take my time, get the right guy then rush and try to do this quickly and then realize, you know, three months into the gig that this guy's not a good fit here. So he's being very, very careful and cautious with the types of guys he wants to bring into his staff. That's more influence from Belichick and Saban and Parcells, who all paid so much attention to their staffs. 
Well, with that being said, John, on a similar subject, how much was he asked about? I know he wouldn't confirm anything, but clearly for anybody connecting the dots, there are a lot of Saban-Belichick connections to some of his potential coaches. How much was he asked about that being a priority or an importance with respect to people that he at least has some established relationships with? Yeah, he says you want to have people that you that you're in line with from a cultural standpoint, and if you have a you know good personal relationship, and you have to be able to trust the guys. And I think you know he pointed out one of the guys that you know he brought in that he didn't have any coaching experience with on the same staff was Jason Garrett. But he said there were enough guys that have crossed paths with Garrett that had crossed paths with him that had vouched for him that he was the type of guy that would fit into what they want to do that made him willing to commit to him in the way that he didn't. You know, I think Nick Saban's probably one of them. Because Garrett coached under Nick Saban mm-hmm. in Miami, who's the quarterback's coach there. So he basically just didn't say that they had to be Belichick or Saban guys, but he did say they had to be in line with what they want to do from a cultural standpoint. And I think with that set line, it makes sense that the people that had served with Belichick or Saban would be in line culturally with the type of stuff that Joe Judge wants to do with the Giants. John, final one for me. What is on the menu now the rest of the day? No, I'm not sure what I'm in for lunch, Paul. How about you? <laughs> I think chicken soup, actually. <laughs> I think okay, quesadillas is on the menu, actually. Yeah, Yeah. so, so, so we, have, we have practice day starting at 1230. A couple two-hour practices will be done here around 430. And uh, then that is all we got for today. Very nice. Well... Enjoy the rest of your travels to practice today, and I guess we will speak to you again tomorrow and uh, send our regards to the rest of the crew. Thanks, John. Absolutely, will do. Yeah, no problem, guys. And just FYI, we'll have a video wrap-up and a written practice report on Giants.com at the end of the day. So make sure fans go and check it out. And, of course, as you guys mentioned, the written article is up from yesterday, my practice report, and the video report after practice, too, that kind of wraps up the day. So make sure you go check that out. Thanks, guys. Sounds good. You got it, John. Appreciate it. That is John Schmelk from the Senior Bowl with the latest. And as he emphasized, uh, he has a full report from day one of practice, which Paul and I were perusing earlier. So uh, you can already take a look at that, and that'll be a daily thing that the Giants will be putting up on their website. As we move forward, let's head back to the phone lines, 201-939-4. 4513 hashtag Giants chat a reminder big blue kickoff live brought to you by Coors Light mountain cold refreshment made to chill let's check in with Mark who is in Jersey City Mark welcome to big blue kickoff live what do you have for us hello guys thanks for having me I Hi. really enjoy your platform really enjoy your platform you really give your caller a, a, an outlet to really view in a nice back and forth it's uh, way different than most uh, NFL teams offer on their websites I hope your callers realize that well you're very <laughs> thanks kind. for tuning in appreciate that um, Isaiah Simmons, and, and Paul, I preface this by saying I, I totally am in line with the way you view football, power football, win in the trenches. That's that's the way you win. Um, you must have been in a candy land watching that 49er Packer game. That was, um, <laughs> that, you know, just it was three plays on a loop, and they couldn't stop it. It was a lot of fun. As a, I agree with was, you. It was nice. It was nice to watch. But Isaiah Simmons, um, this guy. He's a unicorn. I've I've very rarely seen a player like that come along with that type of versatility. I would tell Giant fans um, that are old enough to remember, not old enough to remember, I should say, Brad Van Pelt. Mm-hmm. The same type of player. I mean, just rangy, long, played in the the, the, the deep third, the, the second level, could affect the game as a blitzer, just amazing. Well, Van Pelt, when he came out of Michigan State, was a safety, as you recall, and an outstanding baseball player. He had tremendous athletic skills uh, when they took him in the second round of, of, of his draft. And, you know, when he became a, a five-time Pro Bowl outside linebacker, part of the reason was because he had such tremendous sideline-to-sideline range and he could blanket any running back who was coming out of the backfield without fail. Yeah, he was a true and uh, an anomaly for the time. He wasn't your true downhill thumper. He could just play in space and just could play today. Mm-hmm. I always tell the younger generation, like, look, just because a guy played 30 years ago, 40 years ago, doesn't mean he couldn't play today. Guys. Oh, he could have. No, There's yeah. no doubt. Yeah, There's no doubt. Yeah. Skill set, yeah, skill set. The thing about Simmons, though, is that he has been asked to play some slot. He's been asked to play some safety. Uh, they've used him in more uh, a more of a variety of roles than what Van Pelt did with the Giants. 
Uh, Van Pelt was strictly an outside linebacker. By the time he got here, he literally played special teams, okay? Uh, and, and they used to call it the taxi squad when he first got here as a rookie. And, and then he was promoted to starting outside linebacker. He never played any slot and never played any safety in the Giants scheme. Just to be clear, so that's where the comparison between him and Simmons ends. But in terms of the physical tools and capabilities, there's little question about Van Pelt's athleticism. I would totally be on board with you in saying that. Well, Luke Keekley, for example, who just retired with the Carolina Panthers, was an extremely versatile linebacker who was great in coverage as he was in terms of stopping the run. And that's a big reason why Carolina was able to have a defensive identity during See, Van Pelt tenure. had length, which was very, very important. For, for what he did. Anyway, great call. Uh, was there something else? Oh, no, that's all, guys. I, I would only say that Van Pelt was playing in an era where it was more three yards than a cloud of dust. Yes. This, I mean, it's more of a space game. I mean, I can only imagine what a defensive coordinator would do with him now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? Maybe he would have played a little safety. Who knows? But you're, you're, far, you're, you're, you're totally right in that his, his far-reaching abilities – uh, were just exemplary. And, and quite frankly, I know that many of his teammates believe he should be strongly considered for the Hall of Fame. Had the five straight Pro Bowl votes, uh, uh, or, or should I say uh, trips, but for some reason, I guess partially because the Giants weren't very good in those days, uh, maybe he gets underplayed. But you talk about a guy who was just dominant at the position. You know, he wasn't a sack guy. That's not what he did. You see, he didn't attack the line of scrimmage to get sacks to go after the quarterback. This was just a guy who was phenomenal in pass coverage and phenomenal in tracking down running backs. I mean, and, and a great tackler. I mean, obviously, you remember, Brad, very well by the way you're talking. Van Pelt was technically a very sound defensive player. And appreciate the uh, phone call, Mark. Thanks so much for uh, weighing in. Okay. In terms of any team, I don't think it's just the Giants. I mean, you need guys that could cover on the back end, specifically who are linebackers. Uh, you look at the last few years, players that were drafted, Darius Leonard, uh, his versatility, what he brings to the Colts. Mm -hmm. Derwin James with the Chargers is another name that comes to mind in terms of his ability to play up and back near the line of scrimmage. And Isaiah Simmons was extremely impressive in the national championship game with Clemson. I think, though, a lot of it depends on how a team plans on utilizing him, too, though. You know, you have to have a vision with a type of player like that. Shaq Thompson is another one who Carolina actually brought in. There was a lot of questions when Shaq Thompson was coming into the NFL. You know, where would you put him? You know, these tweener type of players. Well, I'll give you a good example. Jesse Armstead, when he was with the Giants, okay, remember, he came in out of the University of Miami, and he was all banged up, a lot of injuries. That's why he was a low-round draft choice. And when he got to the Giants, he was a special teams player and a sub-package player. And all of a sudden, Dan Reeves decides, well, you know what? He's going to be a full-time starting outside linebacker. And a lot of people are like, no, nah, no, nah, he's got a strong safety build. He's never going to be able to play outside linebacker. But, you know, he put on like 10 pounds and became a five-time all-pro outside linebacker. And Jesse Armstead, if you look at his career, you know, outside linebackers are always thought of in today's game as, well, you got to be a sack artist you got to be coming off the edge and get sacks. Jesse Armstead did not get a ton of sacks in his career. What Jesse Armstead did was cover people and stuff the run and blitz, run blitz and fill gaps and get sideline to sideline. And that's how he made five NFL Pro Bowls because he was an all-around terrific athlete who did a lot of things all over the field. What he was not was a sack artist. And, you know, today, when you think of outside linebackers, that's the first thing you think of. Got to get off the edge and sack the quarterback. And if you're not doing that, people don't want to talk about you. Yeah, but once again, I, I think it really depends on the structure of your defense and what you're asking no that outside question. linebacker to do. And with a guy like Isaiah Simmons, once again, it would depend on where they line him up, what they ask him to do. I mean, he was lining up in the slot. So what do you envision a player like that doing for your defense? That will determine how his numbers play out. Mark Barron, I think, by the way, is another name worth bringing up because when he first came into the NFL, he was a linebacker, and then he was moved to safety when he went to the Rams. So, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Isaiah Simmons' versatility in terms of he can maybe be that hybrid type of player, but 
hybrid players, once again, you have to be careful. Are you asking them to do too much in a game? What is your vision of that player? That, to me, is what is going to determine the success of a player like Simmons at the next level. Let's head back to the phone lines. We check in with Charlie in Portland, Maine, who I would not describe as hybrid. What's happening, Charlie? <laughs> hey, guys. We're doing all right, Charlie. What's happening? What's on your mind? Wonderful, wonderful day in the neighborhood. Hey, for uh, some of us, but go ahead. I I, I think it's time for us to pick a linebacker, Simmons, as our first-round pick. It's about time that we had a guy that can do a lot of things and who has a lot of talent. And I think this staff will actually utilize his strengths. And I, you know, I just think it's time to do that. And I've been looking at the uh, free agency here. And I hope these guys aren't averse to older players. I want to know if this coaching staff is going to look at free agents who are a little bit older, um, who can really help the team. Uh, Jason Peters is available. Uh, Wentworth is available as offensive tackle. Uh, Whitworth, yes. You've been on the Whitworth bandwagon since the 18th century, but go ahead. And (laughs) and Whitworth has been playing since the 17th century, by the way. And Peters has also had his share of injuries. Yes, with the Eagles. You know, uh, Charlie, before you go any further, let me just say one thing to you, okay? And I've said this on the program before. I think right now my gut feeling is that the Giants lean towards one of the offensive tackles at number four. Let me make that very clear. That is my gut feeling. And part of the reason is they know they want to have a power running game with Barkley, and they know that Daniel Jones is the bread and butter franchise quarterback, at least they believe and want him to be for the next 10 years at least. Well, to do that, you've got to make sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you've got those tackle spots firmed up. And basically, I think Remmers is an adequate player, but he's not an all-pro caliber player. He's just an adequate, functional, solid player at right tackle. And right now, I look, I've told you this before. I'm very hesitant to criticize Nate Solder because of all the other things he's gone through. But the fact of the matter is, his production is not blue-chip, high-caliber production right now based on what we saw this past year. And so, to me, to me, it's much more important for Barkley's sake and for Jones's sake that you get a blue-chip, bonafide, lock-stock-barrel power guard, uh, not guard, tackle, who is going to shore up that offensive line beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and you know, I know Thomas all along uh, has been, in, in most circles, the lead guy. But here's the thing that I want to caution you about. Jeddick Wills from Alabama, remember, the Saban connection. Okay? Just remember that. And Worf's from Iowa, Wills from Alabama, and Thomas from Georgia are the three offensive tackles that most people think could be top 10 picks. Well, consider the Saban connection to Alabama. If he were to give Judge an absolutely glowing scouting report that would jive with the Giants personnel people, don't be surprised if Saban could push him over the top and wind up making him the Giants pick if they should stay at four or even five or six and they're in a position to grab him. Don't be surprised. And if they do that, you would have to tip their, your cap to them because there's a line of logic there. They certainly could use one. And if Saban is going to throw his endorsement behind the player, and again, I don't know if he has, but if he does, because you know Judge is going to ask him, he'd be foolish oh, not to. Of course. And he has a relationship. And if he gets that huge thumbs up from Saban, well, then you know what? Because you know they asked him about Tomlinson a few years ago, too when they drafted Dalvin Tomlinson. And I think he turned out to be a pretty good player. Okay? So don't be shocked. That's that's the way I'm leaning, Charlie. And I'm not afraid to tell you that. We lost him. Wow, no. I think we've just silenced him. No, he's definitely on the line. This Charlie? This may be a first. He's gone. The fact that he is silent. No, okay. I, I just want to experience this moment here for a second. <laughs> I, I want to take it in. Where Charlie's on the line and it's Remember, just nothing but silence. We had silence. trouble with his phone the other day. Oh, you did? Yes, we had trouble with his phone it's the other day. Too bad I wasn't here for that. I, it might have been a battery issue. So, in any event, then he had to call back. So, Charlie, uh, I'm just giving you some lines of thought here. Uh, basically, the way the Giants want to set up their franchise with the power running game, with the franchise quarterback, with the need to solidify and upgrade, if you can, at the tackle spot, and with the connection to Saban and the blue chip pro prospect that should be on the board when they pick. 
There's a lot going for Alabama tackle uh, Wills in that spot. Well, I was actually a little bit disappointed that we didn't get to hear Charlie's entire free agent wish list. I was hoping that he was going to list uh, every veteran free agent out there that is on the computer of his that he has been going through and shifting through over the last few days. I guess we'll have to wait for that on tomorrow's episode. That's a, a little teaser. Uh, I can't believe we're using Charlie as a teaser, but you know what? Maybe that's a sign the world is coming to an end <laughs> as we come full circle here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. That is going to wrap things up for us. Certainly appreciate everybody for tuning in. Stay locked to Giants.com for all coverage from the Senior Bowl. We'll be back up and running again tomorrow at noon Eastern, continuing to discuss the latest offseason news as well as the latest from the Senior Bowl and across the National Football League. And as always, Big Blue Kickoff Live is brought to you by Coors Light, Mountain Cold Refreshment, made to chill. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday, and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.